good to see you this morning. I'm going to encourage you to take your copy of God's Word as we continue to worship and turn with me to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 17 this morning, Exodus chapter 17 as we continue in our series in the book of Exodus. Next week, I'm really excited. We're going to have a guest preacher with us, Dr. John Cantalo. Dr. Cantalo is the longtime pastor at Sixth Avenue Baptist Church, historic church right here about three miles away from us, and we've got a great relationship with Sixth Avenue. We've had their choirs in wonderful uh, joint uh, choir celebrations here with Dawson. So, so Sixth Avenue is no stranger to Dawson. Dr. Cantalo is no stranger, and I am excited. Uh, months ago, I asked if he would be open to preaching, and uh, so he graciously agreed. And so that means this is our last Sunday in the book of Exodus, as we're continuing in this series, we're going to come back to it in 2022 in a Ten Commandments series. And last week, I was out. Sickness was going through our family. And uh, Dr. Bill Johnston did a wonderful job in Exodus chapter 16, reminding us of God's desire to feed our spiritual hunger. And uh, as he gave manna to the Israelites there in the wilderness, so he gives us the food we need spiritually for the journey that he's called us to. What we discover in Exodus chapter 17 is just a, a glorious reminder of how God provides for us and how he protects us in the battles that we face in life. Now, not everyone realizes that the life of the Christian is actually a battle. If, if I could invent a, a time machine and we could all go back to different places, maybe some of you would, uh, kind of Civil War buffs, maybe one of the places that you would impute there, input there to be able to go back would be July the 21st of 1861. Maybe you would want to see with your own eyes the, the beginning of that awful conflict that divided our nation there. But to see it, what you've read about, to, if you were in, in Manassas, Virginia, in July the 21st of 1861, what would you have seen? Well, if you were 25 miles outside of Washington, D.C., you'd have seen, seen 30,000 troops there marching to a small river called Bull Run. You'd have seen position there 20,000 Confederate troops in what would be the inaugural battle that would, would uh, lead us for years to come in, in an awful, awful time in our nation's history. Now, what you would have also seen, if you could have gotten in that time machine and gone back, you'd have seen hundreds, if not thousands, as journalists would tell us, thousands of citizens from the, our surrounding areas that brought their picnic baskets and food to be able to watch, like, like they were going to a play, like they were going to an opera, to be able to, to, to gawk and to see what was before them, none of them knowing that the battle would be so intense that it would spill over what they went to be able to watch and the safety to be able to eat as a picnic, it actually turned into a battle. So the battle spilled over into where they were sitting. Now, sometimes we have metaphors that guide us in the Christian life, and there, there are sometimes that we think of the Christian life as this sort of like leisurely picnic, but it's not. We are in a battle with real foes, foes that we know as our flesh, foes that we know as the world, foes that we know as Satan and his henchmen that, that seek to dissuade us from following him faithfully. 
seek to distract us from the pursuit of holiness, that, that you and I this week, in any week that we're followers of him, we're not leisurely going into a, a, a picnic, but we go into battle as followers of him with actual opponents and actual foes who seek to steal, kill, and destroy. Now, the Israelites didn't know that they needed protection. Their foes would be foes that lurked from a distance that came upon them in this surprise attack that we read of in Exodus chapter 17, starting in verse 8. Who were those foes of the Israelites then? Exodus chapter 17, picking up the story in verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and they put it under him. And he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands, do you see this, were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses in verse 14, write this as a memorial in a book. We're reading that book now and recited in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under the sun. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Exodus chapter 16, they're journeying in the wilderness, the Israelites are, and they are like seven-year-olds or eight-year-olds in the back of a van on a long journey saying, Mom, I'm hungry. Dad, I'm thirsty. And as they're in the journey there, God is providing for them manna in Exodus chapter 16. In Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7, he says to Moses, as, as the Israelites are complaining in the wilderness, the food's not great. We had like a, we had like a Nikki's West buffet every day back in Egypt. And look, you brought us out here, and there's nothing out here. We're thirsty, God. Retire, God. God says to Moses, strike that rock there. Water comes out of the rock. He provides for them food. He provides for them water. We come into the wilderness here, and then lurking in the shadows are the Amalekites. Who were the Amalekites? The identity of the Israelites' foe, it's, it's helpful for you. It's helpful for me to know. The Amalekites, you can write in the margin of your Bible if you're taking notes, Exodus, or excuse me, Genesis 36 you have a, a genealogy coming out of Esau. Do you remember Esau and Jacob? They had this sibling rivalry that had no comparison to it. They hated each other. Their, their generations that came behind them, the descendants, this is sort of like the Old Testament's version of the Hatfield and McCoy's feuds here. And it continued. And what we're going to discover is that the Amalekites, they are going to be the enemies of the Israelites, God's people, even into the promised land. So this is just the inaugural battle of what's going to be many skirmishes to come. And so the Amalekites are set against the Israelites. Now, why did they originally attack here in Exodus chapter 17? And notice that the, the, the passage is, is silent on this. 
So we have to sort of speculate that the Amalekites, this nomadic people living in the wilderness there in Egypt, they see thousands upon thousands of people uh, coming out of Egypt, and they begin to do they begin to do the natural resources math. Hey, we barely have enough food for us out here. We certainly don't have enough water for us out here. They saw the Israelites not something to celebrate. Boy, how God had set them free from Egyptian bondage. No, they see them as a threat to their own existence. So, of course, they're going to attack. This is the identity of those spiritual foes of the Israelites. Now, now who are your spiritual foes? I mean, do we need to go through a phone book and try to figure out who the Amalekites are? And the answer is no. Those are not your spiritual foes, but you do have foes. Do not be misled. You, as a follower of God, you have been set free from the Egypt of the world. You have been been set free from the bondage of your flesh. You have been set free, and the, the Pharaoh, who is the ultimate Pharaoh, Satan himself, he is a defeated foe. But Satan, the world, the flesh, they still battle, don't they? You're on your way to the promised land, and it is a defeated foe that God, through Jesus Christ, has conquered. But you know as well as I do, this defeated foe wants to ensnare you, entrap you, dissuade you from following him, distract you from the pursuit of holiness. And this is true for every follower of God. We do have enemies. Paul, he's writing to the church at Ephesus, and he pauses. He says, hey, let me tell you who your enemy is. Listen to what he says, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. He is saying to Christians then and Christians now that there are actually spiritual foes, and it's not flesh and blood. this This is a really good reminder, especially in 2021. We spend way too much time as followers of Jesus demonizing other people. What we think sometimes in, in, in our amped up rhetorical world, we think at times that the real enemy are people that, that don't vote like us or don't hold the same views of us. And so if we're not careful, we end up taking those people and we make them the enemies and we demonize them. And Paul says, they're not the enemy. You know that person that made you harbor this sense of like, I can't believe they think like that. I can't believe they're doing that. That's not your enemy. You know who that is? That person, that person is a, is a, is, is a person that is created in the image of God. That's who that is. It is a person that is loved by God so much that he would send his son to die for him. That's who that is. Now you might disagree with them. That's Okay. You might feel that they're in in, in error, that's okay, but they're not the enemy. There is actually a real enemy. And we we need to focus our eyes upon who actually the enemy is, and that enemy is not that person who is a neighbor of yours, or a public figure, or a family member. But it is actually an enemy, and it is it is an invisible enemy to our eyes. It is not a natural, physical enemy, but a, a deeper spiritual enemy, and, and that enemy is an enemy that we do need to fix our eyes upon and need to understand not just his identity of the world, the flesh, and Satan himself, but we need to know the strategy. We need to know the strategy of this enemy here. What is the strategy of our spiritual foes? 
Notice again in this passage here that the Amalekites, they come and they attacked um, the, the Israelites here. I always have a funny story about um, the phone ringing in church one time. And it was my father-in-law preaching. I can't help but to tell this. And he, he stopped and he's like, who's, who's got the call? Who's got the call? And the phone kept on ringing and it kept on ringing. And it kept on ringing only for him to realize that it wasn't anybody in the pews. It wasn't anybody in the choir. His phone was in his back pocket right there. So... <laughs> He's like, oh, I've got to answer it right here. So every time I think about, every time I hear a phone, it's okay. It very well could be my phone in the back pocket right there. So don't worry about it whatsoever. And one of these days, I might have to answer it. And uh, Danielle's telling me what to get, you know, get some milk or something at the end of the service or something like that. So the identity of our spiritual foes. Notice also with me the strategy. Now, we miss this because all we see is the Amalekites attacking the Israelites there in the open wilderness. But if you write in your margin a corollary passage, it gives you a little bit more explanation. It's Deuteronomy 25. In Deuteronomy 25, we have a a retelling of this story where the Amalekites, we realize how they attack God's people. And you know how they do it? I mean, it's, it's not this chivalrous sort of duel of the 19th century with all of these rules and all of kind of the, the pomp and circumstance of it. It's nothing like that. You know how they attack them? From behind. They attack them in the most vulnerable place. The, the people that lost their lives in this, this inaugural attack coming out of Egypt, you know who they were? They were the youngest and they were the oldest. They're the most vulnerable. And it is a reminder to us that our spiritual foes do not fight fair. I mean, you need to know that. That the strategy of the enemy against you is not to fight fair. It's to attack you at your weakest place. It's to attack you at the most vulnerable place. Think about Luke chapter 4. There you got the Son of God, Jesus Christ, wet behind his ears, coming out of his baptism, led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Forty days, forty nights, he's there, not eating, praying by himself, physically exhausted, hungry. And it's then, on the first night that Satan comes to tempt him, no. The first week, no. No. Is it day 21? No, it's 40 days. It's at the place where Jesus is most isolated. It's at the place of Jesus being the most hungry. And notice what Satan whispers in his ears. Hey, you see, you see that stone there? Doesn't that that kind of remind you of a a Lambert's roll that they throw when you're going to the beach? Doesn't that, don't, don't you think you could just snap your fingers? And turn it into bread. And what is Satan doing? He he is showing us how he works. He comes to Jesus and tempts him at his place of most vulnerability. Of weakness. Physical weakness. Physical hunger. And do not be surprised that Satan, he he doesn't deal the, 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 the cards to you. But he can certainly tempt you to sort of play the hand that life has dealt you. And sometimes, oftentimes, he couples life's difficulties with his greatest sense of temptation. So often in life, you can look back upon your life and see how it was a time that was really, really difficult at work. That you heard the whispers of Satan saying, here's the answer. Some of you know what this is like to to be in that place where you're walking through your marriage and and every marriage, no, no one gets married in the Garden of Eden. 
So every marriage is, is, has those stresses upon them, not often uh, difficult, like sinful things, but just the stresses of life, the stresses of, of raising kids, the stresses of whatever it might be. And it's in those moments that Satan whispers, here's what you deserve. There are those times where, where, for no fault of your own, this is just a difficult time. You might feel isolated. You might feel alone. And it's in those times, in those times of weakness, where Satan whispers to you. It's that siren song singing to you, hey, this will show you companionship. This will meet your needs. And you know what you're hearing? You're hearing the voice of a liar. Satan's a liar. Satan's a liar, and he wants to tempt you. He wants you to see the world for what it's not. He wants you to think that the flesh isn't something you should crucify, but you should indulge. He whispers to you that, that ultimately what you think the word of God is is actually not true. Notice how he tempted Eve. You go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, and you know what Satan does when he comes into the garden? The first thing he does is said, I don't think God actually said that if you eat of this tree that you're going to die. The first thing that he is doing is he is questioning the very word of God. If you eat this, there's not going to be any consequences. Actually, you'll be like God and you'll know the difference between good and evil. What is Satan doing in the garden? He's lying. What is Satan doing outside of the garden in the world in which we live? He is a, he's a liar who is prowling around seeking to steal, kill, and destroy. If you're a follower of Jesus, he can't steal your salvation, but he can steal the joy of your salvation. I mean, he's a defeated foe. He has no power over your eternity. He has no power to be able to pull you out of the hand of God. But I tell you this, he will whisper in your ear saying, you remember what you did? You can't be a follower of him. He doesn't love you. That's what Satan will whisper to you about God. What is he doing? He's attacking you at your point of weakness and he's lying to you. He's lying to you. That's the strategy of our enemy. Now, we don't need to obsess about this. This is one of the things that is a mistake when we start talking about the world and the flesh and Satan. There can be an unhealthy obsession with it. Do you know that? Sometimes we can, we can be so fascinated with spiritual warfare and that we see demons behind everything that's going on in our life. And that's not the place that we need to be. We need to have a healthy recognition of the strategy of Satan. I remember growing up playing football. Now listen, you know, some, some preachers are like, I remember growing up playing football and I was like this all-American quarterback. Hey, that wasn't me. So <laughs> let me preface this story. I remember uh, growing up playing football and I was a fourth-string backup quarterback, you know, in the high school. The highlight of my 10th uh, grade year was Coach Greer calling me from the sidelines, Eldridge, Eldridge, Eldridge. I run up to the side of him. It's like, put me in, Coach. I'm ready to play. This was going to be it. This is where I was going to be able to show just how great, a, uh, you know, a five-foot-ten quarterback could be right there, you know? It's so I get there and he goes, hey, hey, I need you to go get me some water over there. So that's, that's sort of the kind of quarterback I was. So I was on the team, not really on the field, but a part of the team, I realized there are certain things that a team needs to do, especially if you're getting ready for Friday night. I mean, you're on the field practicing, no doubt about that. I mean, there's a whole lot of practicing about the right formation. There's a whole lot of things you're going to do in the weight room. But a part of getting ready for Friday night was being in a film room 
and watching the opponent. And so that way, if you, if you saw what the quarterback was doing, it could maybe give you an idea as you're scheming your defensive uh, formations against him. If you see which way that the fullback goes, that maybe gives you the recognition to be able to know what's going to do and how you defend it. And as Christians, we don't obsess over the strategy of the enemy, but we do need to recognize it. We don't need to cower in fear because greater is you or greater is he that lives in you than he that lives in the world. So we're more than conquerors through Jesus Christ that has died for us and dwells in us. So we don't cower in fear of this defeated enemy. Sometimes we talk about Satan and we give him way too much credit. We give way too much credit to Satan. We talk about Satan as he is like an equal opponent to God. So we talk about Satan as if he is, he is the corollary to God. But you know who the only omniscient being is? That's God. You know the only omnipotent being? That's God. You know the only omnipresent being? That's God. Satan is not everywhere. He's not all-powerful, and he is not all-knowing. So no one here in this sanctuary ever has to say, Satan made me do it. He can't make you do anything. The Bible tells us in the book of James chapter 4, you resist Satan, he must flee. Why? Because he is a defeated foe. Not through you, not through me, but through the power of Jesus Christ. He can't make you do anything, but he sure can whisper. And he sure can use the weaknesses to entice you and to attempt to ensnare you. That's the strategy of our spiritual foe. We need to know the identity but, but let's talk about the victory over our spiritual foes. How do we walk in victory over the attacks of Satan? Well, it's simple in this passage here. I love this illustration that we discover. The key to defeating our spiritual foes is found in verse 9. It's found in the posture of Moses. Go back and look. In verse 9, he says to Joshua, you've got to go fight. First mention of Joshua here. The baton's going to be passed to Joshua as they go into the promised land here. But Joshua shows up here. He's leading the Israelites as they take this uh, military uh, battalion to go fight against the Amalekites. Choose for us men. Go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I'm going to stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him. Fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Notice verse 11. I love this passage. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And wherever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. You know what this means here? This means that throughout this entire battle, everyone understood. They could see with their own eyes that as Moses is lifting up his hands, you know what this is? It is a, it is a portrait of dependency upon God. In Exodus chapter 9, where hell is raining down upon Egypt, when Moses intercedes to God for it to stop, he lifts his hands in a posture of dependency. He's praying. The Jewish people all throughout the Old Testament, when you're reading, there's a posture of prayer, hands raised. So there he is on a hill for everyone to see. His hands are raised and the Israelites are prevailing. He, he feels a little bit overconfident. He leans them down. The Amalekites begin to prevail. He gets tired. He can't raise his hands. There's Aaron on one side. There's her on another side. They lift his hands. So everybody would have known at the end of the day, hey, how did the Israelites defeat us? We surprised attacked them, the Amalekites would say. We had, we had all the advantage the Amalekites could say, but when they're debriefing, what somebody would say, hey, did you see 
That guy with his hands held high, praying to his God, I tell you, I don't know what happened, but it must have been that their God gave us the victory. Their God gave them the victory. That's the power of this moment here. Isn't the ingenuity or, 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 or military might of the Israelites? And it wasn't because Joshua was really courageous. God gave them the victory. And this is the key. This is the key to understanding every spiritual battle that we're in. In our own strength, we are helpless and hopeless. But praise God, we never go into the battle in our own strength. We have the ability to depend upon him. I love the way that Paul, writing to the church in Ephesus, would say, Stand therefore, chapter 6, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, and all circumstances take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. This is the key to spiritual victory over the battles that seek to ensnare you each and every day and each and every week. It's not in your determination. It's not in your grit. It's not in your will. It is ultimately in a posture of dependency upon the one who is the victor, and that is God. What, what kind of posture do you have? Are you walking into life in your strength? Like it all depends upon you. The health of your family, like it all depends upon you. The clarity for the future of your workplace, like it all depends upon you. That prodigal son or that prodigal daughter who, who ultimately is in a foreign land, is he or she coming back? Is it all dependent upon you? Or are we coming before him with our hands raised high saying, we can't do this. We can't get the victory. But we know you can. And so we depend upon you. We cast all of our needs upon you, understanding that when we approach the throne of grace, we receive help in our time of need. Not of our doing, but of who you are. How do you approach? Is it a picnic or is it actually a battle? I remember a few years ago, we were traveling to Huntsville. Some friends of mine, we were running a race that Saturday morning and I got a call on my cell phone. It was like 2017, 2018 here. somewhere not that long ago. And he said, hey, David, you got to turn around. I ran out of gas. And I just thought to myself, how in the 21st century do you run out of gas? I mean, what, what excuse do you have? You have all of these things that are going off in your car saying, uh, low on gas, low on gas, 29 miles, 28 miles, 27 miles, 26 miles. He ignored all of those things and ran out of gas on the interstate. We had to turn around and drive him to get gas. Now, what he said to me, I think it's really revealing. It, it wasn't, uh, you know, you, it, it wasn't anything heinous that made him ignore all of the obvious signs that he was supposed to run out of gas. He just said, I had a car full of my friends. I was kind of watching y'all in front. We were talking and guess what? We just, I just didn't see it. Just sort of neglect. And I think sometimes th this is what happens in our life. It's what happens in our marriages. It, it, it isn't the, the adulterous affair that oftentimes breaks the, the heart of the marriage. It's the little things of neglect. 
the little distractions of life, little ignoring those warning signs, and just doing marriage in our own strength, not stopping to be fueled in prayer by God. So many of us need to be reminded that apart from him, we can do nothing. So I ask you just sort of a diagnostic question. Are you going through life trying to do life in your own strength? Are you a man or woman who consistently and regularly is on your knees asking God for direction, protection, guidance, comfort, conviction? Are there times each and every day, whether it's the morning or it's night, whether it's in the day where, where you're stopping to refuel. You know how many times you need to fill up in a week? How many times do you need to fill up your car during a week? How many times do you need to fill up your truck in a week? Well, it all depends upon how fast you're driving and how far you have to go in that week, right? I don't see anyone in the sanctuary that's not driving fast in life with a lot of things to do and a lot of responsibility. So how much more so do you need to refuel each and every day on your knees in utter dependency upon him in prayer with hands lifted up for the sake of our church, for the sake of our marriages in this church, for the sake of our children in the future and your grandchildren, for the sake of God to work in our country, in our state, and in our cities in a way that we look back, just like the Amalekites said, I don't know what happened, but it must have been their God. How much do we hunger for us to be able to look back and to say, I don't know what's going on in my family. I don't know what's going on in our church. I don't know what's going on in my life. It must only be God working. Do we hunger for God to do something that can only be explained with our hands held high and utter dependency upon him? Or are we walking through life in our own strength, in our own might? What is it for you? What is it for me? This morning, I want to just invite us. There's no guilt in this. It's just an opportunity. There, there are some marriages in this room. There's some individuals in this room that are just on spiritual fumes. They're just on spiritual fumes. And so here's an invitation this morning for us to pause and to confess to God our dependency upon him, our need for him, how we've ignored maybe some of those warning signs. And we've been trying to do life we're going down the highway and the interstate in our own strength, in our own fumes. I want us just to pause. And in this moment, maybe, maybe it's just right here in the sanctuary where you just lift your hands.